If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, and uh, we'll do a reading there. Just a couple things as you turn there. One, uh, I want to remind you again, uh, this evening we have our church-wide Christmas gathering, and so this is for our whole church body and families, kids, everybody be part of this. We're, we'll meet uh, earlier than our normal Sunday evening time has traditionally been, so we'll meet, we'll be uh, at 5 o'clock in Building B, and we'll uh, bring bring snacks and to share, and there's been a sign-up. If you don't have time to prepare food, that's fine. Just come. There will be plenty. Uh, and so please come and join us this evening, and it'll be an informal time to eat and and to just to, to converse together and to, to have good time fellowship together. Also, uh, our Sunday school hour for the adults is different today. We, we won't have the normal Sunday school classes meeting. But we will be combined today for a winter Bible study, be looking at the subject of contentment. And so we'll meet, we'll have refreshments, and then come right back up here, all the adult adults, come back up in this room, and we'll have uh, our winter Bible study uh, here today. All right, uh, I know, I know uh, most of you are, know who uh, R.C. Sproul is, and some, many of you know that he uh, died this week on Thursday. He's, uh, he's had a, a mark on my life and many of your lives. He's a, a theologian, an author, a, a pastor, a professor, and uh, it's a Ligonier Ministries. He's founded that ministry and has had a, a big impact in just getting audio and books uh, out there for the wider church. I, I'm grateful to God for him. He's he was a brilliant uh, man, just a, a, an intellect that was a real gift to the church. But he was a gracious man, and he was a courageous uh, man, uh, and a courageous voice for the gospel and for theology uh, over the past 50 years. And I'm thankful. The second Christian book that I read was by Dr. Sproul's "Chosen by God," and it had a huge impact on my life and just how I understood who God was, this God that I had come to, to, to believe in. I've listened to countless sermons of his over the years, uh, over tapes and CDs and now uh, podcasts, and, uh, and many of those stand out. One stands out, though. I, we were at Together for the Gospel uh, probably eight or ten years ago. There was a group of us that had gone up there, and he was speaking uh, up there, and he spoke on the curse emphasis in the atonement and which is right in line with what we're looking at uh, today and this kind of came back to me this week it was so compelling and humbling and just thought-provoking and stirring of affections for God and it was this is one of those really impactful uh, messages that, that stands out in my life and I just my own heart was 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 cut and blessed at the same time. I just remember leaving that, just weeping, and uh, with other men from our church as we just responding to what he had taught. It was just really good. He was a teacher and theologian at heart. I have, I don't come close to R.C. Sproul-like abilities or intellect by any means, but I was talking with Eric this morning, and he was asking how things have come for the... So the and I was thinking, this is about the most R.C. Sproul-esque message that you'll probably hear from me. This is a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deeply theological message in, in the passage that we're in. And so I don't, again, I'm not trying to claim that to, to speak like him, but this is that kind of in that vein. But Hebrews chapter 2, all, all that aside, Hebrews 2, let's look in verse 14, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 2, verse 14. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It was May 12, 1939. There was a Navy submarine called the Squalus, and it began a series of test dives off the New Hampshire coast. After completing 18 of these test dives successfully, it went down for the 19th time on May 23rd. And as it dropped below the surface, the main air induction valve, which allowed oxygen to come in and kept water out of the submarine, as it was submerged, there that valve failed and this torrent of seawater came rushing in to this submarine. And it filled both of the engine rooms and it filled the crew compartment and it, and it filled one of the torpedo rooms. And immediately, 26 men lost their lives with this event. Uh, the remaining crew members, the other 33 crew mem- members, acted quickly and were able to seal off doors and kept water from filling the whole submarine. But the squalus sank to the bottom of the seafloor at a depth of about 240 feet. Now, until that time, the deepest submarine rescue was about 20 feet. And so here is this sub in 240 feet of water, unable to do anything for themselves to rescue themselves, basically just sitting there waiting to die. There was no protocol for any kind of rescue like this. Any, any thoughts and ideas of how you might help people in this situation, it was all purely theoretical, just, just ideas. Nothing had been tested before. But they, but they tried using this new and, again, previously untested rescue tra- chamber to make an attempt, a very risky, both not just whether it would work or not, but for those that were attempting this rescue, their lives were at risk. And so they tried this the next day. And after 13 hours of going down and coming back up, all 33 of those crew members were rescued. And what was going through their minds, can you imagine, as they made their way and cleared the surface of that water and breathed in fresh air and boarded that, that ship? I mean, just can you imagine what, their, what was going through their minds? Do you think maybe they were just a little bit grateful to be alive, <laughs> thanking those that worked for their rescue? But what if, after being rescued from sure death, One of those survivors came up and said something like this to his rescuer. Thank you so much for getting me out of that submarine. It smelled so bad down there. And my socks were all wet and I was afraid I was going to get blisters. And there was no power. The power went out after it was flooded so I couldn't read my book and and, and finish. I was on the last chapter and I didn't get to finish my book. And our lunch, it got all wet, and I hate eating soggy food. It was just terrible. And, and, I, and I had tickets to a show 
tonight, and I didn't think I was going to get to make it. So thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for getting me out of there. Does that sound right? If, if that was the extent of his gratitude, if that was all he was thankful for, he would have totally missed what the rescue was even about. He, we, we, would, would there be appreciation for those things? Sure. I don't like wet feet, and I like lights, and I don't like soggy food. That's, that's sure that we, we like those things. And, and, but, but in order to fully appreciate the rescue, you need to understand and, and, and apprehend what you've been rescued from. You need to know that you weren't just rescued from discomfort and boredom, but you were rescued from imminent, excruciating, uh, terrifying death. Well, here's my point as we look in this text today. Many people fail to appreciate the fullness of Christ's rescuing work because they fail to grasp the danger they were rescued from. Let me say that again. Many people fail to appreciate the fullness of Christ's rescuing work because they fail to, to grasp the danger that they were rescued from. I mean, it's, it's not popular to talk about the danger in our, through our 21st century um, grid of popular Christianity. So we end up minimizing the value of the rescuing work of Jesus because we minimize the magnitude of the danger we were in. Even at this time of year, here we are at Christmas time and, and we're talking about Jesus and his birth and even to some extent why he came and we're all about keeping Christ in Christmas and, and we, you know, get offended if somebody says happy holidays and say, and instead of Merry Christmas. But even we, if we're honest, and I think we'll see this today, we, we can think such small and bland and tepid thoughts about Christ's birth and why he really came. And it can be for us just kind of a sentimental uh, thoughts of, of Christmas. So what is the danger? What is the danger that Christ has rescued us from? What did, why did He come? Why did He come and rescue us? The danger that we were in is we were under the just, condemning, white-hot wrath of holy God. Wrath that we deserve because of our sin. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I realize Callie asked me yesterday if I was preaching a Christmas message today. And I said, yeah, I, I am actually. And now she's probably wondering what if I'm telling the truth. Um, we're, we're, we're talking about Christmas in unlikely places. That's the kind of the title for this Sunday and next. But looking more the theology, the why of Christmas. Not, not the events of what happened in the Gospels, but why did Christ come? And this is what we see. And, and, and so... So the danger is we were under God's wrath. The rescue is here. It's this word in our text this morning, propitiation. We're going to get to that word in just a moment. But let's look at Hebrews 2.17. That's where we're going to focus this morning. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. God becoming, God coming in flesh. He had to be made like us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the rescue. I realize again, we're not in the study of Hebrews right now and we're just kind of jumping in. But two of the major themes in the book of Hebrews 
uh, are sur- surface right here in this one little verse. The, the priesthood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ. And so one commentator said of just of this one verse, in verse 17, he called it the nerve center of the entire epistle. And so we're jumping in right to the, the, the really the, the crux of this entire letter. And so one of the things, but what I want us to focus on, what, is, what are the key components of God's rescue mission? What has he done? What has Christ done to rescue us from imminent, eternal danger? And there's three words. The first word is this, is identification. Identification, or incarnation, you could say. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. And and again, you see that, therefore, and you ask, what's it therefore? And we've all heard that. It's not just a filler word. It's not just a simple transition. Okay, I want to say something else, so I'll throw a therefore in there. No, this is a strong causal adverb here. He's saying, for this reason, this is why. And so it's connected clearly to what proceeds. And the immediate context that we just read about, and we could go back more verses, is he's talking about salvation that, that, that in verses 9 to 16, he's showing that all that Jesus has done to render saving help for us, and that's the word in the previous verse, is that help. And so the connection, since Jesus came to save us, that's why he came, to lovingly take hold of us and to help us. Therefore... It was necessary for him to be made like us. That's the connection there. So Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus, all that we're singing about and celebrating and rejoicing in, it was all necessary in order for God to save us. The atonement that we needed, it necessitated the incarnation. That's what we see here. He had to be made like his brothers. He had to take on flesh and blood. He had to be like us in every respect. And the, this likeness was nothing less than complete identification. It's not simply simulation. It's not that Jesus was acting like a human being, put on a human costume and just pretending to be man. That's not it. No, it was, it was assimilation. Jesus entered into this world not to simulate humanity, but to assimilate, ass, assimilate humanity. He actually became man fully and completely. He really born small and dependent. I uh, was able to stop by and see uh, Deontay and Celeste and little baby Corey uh, yesterday. And to see this little fragile little peanut of a baby, just cute and small. And I, here I am thinking of this. And here's Jesus becoming like us in every way, even in that sense of dependence and helplessness and smallness of a baby. It's incredible. But he had to be made like us. And he says, in every respect, Jesus came, had to have the full and complete human experience. Injury, sickness, fatigue, emotion, temptation, suffering, even death. In every respect. You know, sometimes in order, we kind of want to protect the, the transcendence and the, and the, and the supremacy of, of Jesus Christ and his deity. We can inadvertently minimize his full humanity and make light of that. Scriptures don't do that. It's truly staggering. Jesus was truly, fully human. He was made just like us in every respect, save one exception, that's sin. He was tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So, again, verse 17, atonement requires incarnation. And what it, but what does it mean? He just said that Jesus had to be made like us in every respect. And we, what do you mean he had to? to could Jesus really be obligated to do anything? He's the Son of God. He didn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. 
So let me just say two things to that. Uh, because maybe they get tripped up by that language. He had to do something. Well, one, when God chose or when he willed or he decreed to save sinners, he did not do so out of necessity. He, he did it freely, graciously, sovereignly, willingly, according to his own good pleasure. That's clear in Scripture. So when we say Jesus was under obligation, we don't mean that he was somehow forced against his will, that, that, that his arm was twisted and just till he couldn't take it anymore. Okay, I'll save them. That's not it at all. Nothing compelled him. There, and there was nothing in us that moved him towards us. We were not irresistibly cute. Not like little baby Corey. And, and so we, we, that's not how God viewed us. I, I just, I gotta save them. That's not it. But listen, once he did choose to save us, there was a consequent necessity to how he would accomplish this salvation, this rescue. It couldn't just happen anyway. God said from the beginning, you sin, you die. So he, he couldn't then turn around and say later, you know, never mind all that stuff I said before, all the sin and death stuff. Just, just forget about that. Let's just be buddies. That couldn't happen. He had to be made like us. No, sin is just, someone says, sin is the contradiction of God and he must react against it in holy indignation. And so sin must be met with divine judgment. And it's this truth that undergirds that great truth in Romans, in Romans 3.26 that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So if he's to justify us, he has to be just. In the saving work of Christ on the cross, the demands of God's holiness and his justice have been fully satisfied. That's what we're saying. Once God decides freely, willingly, sovereignly, graciously to save and rescue sinners, he must rescue them in a way that's consistent with his character. Justice must be met. The demands of the law must be satisfied. His holiness must be vindicated. And the way he does it is not by just kind of skirting around and saying, you know, hey, what? You like to sin, I like to forgive. This, this is a great relationship. No. He says, every single jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. Every ounce of holiness will be satisfied. Every little demand of the law must be completely and fully satisfied. That's what he says. How can that possibly happen? Well, that's what Christmas is about. That's what we're celebrating. It happens through the, through the coming of a representative and his death and resurrection. It, but in order for that representative's death to be of infinite value, he has to be God. But God can't die and death is required. And so God must become like man in every respect in order to die in the place of man. So we have Jesus, the God-man. He had to be made like us in every respect to save us. It had to be this way. Atonement necessitated incarnation. The only, the one who came to save Adam's race must be identified with Adam's race. He couldn't be some superhuman uh, figure. He had to be fully and completely like us in every way except sin in order to represent us. Now that reality, and we just said the first word, but that reality... That there was this moral obligation on God's part once he chose to save us. To, to make his son like us in every respect. It shouldn't just make your brain hurt, which it does mine and has made mine hurt all week. 
but it should make our hearts swell with wonder and gratitude to God. And it should make our voices, just our, our mouths open to sing songs of praise. And we'll do that in just a moment. So he had to do this. He had to be born. He had to be made like us in every respect. Why? Look at the, look at the verse. Let's break this sentence down. So that, this is purpose, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And that brings us to the second word. So we, identification, secondly, mediation. Mediation. There's this tightly wound argument in this letter of Hebrews. It's been, it's, someone's called it the thinking book of the Bible. It's, there's not trite little fluffy statements. There's, this, is, this is dense. It's, it's profound. It's good. It's, it's intended for our, our, our growth and understanding. It's not meant to be confusing, but this is, this is deep. And so the end is propitiation. We haven't got to that. That will be our third word. The end is rescue. But to make propitiation, he had to become a merciful and faithful high priest. But to become a merciful and faithful high priest, he had to become like us in every respect. That's the flow of this sentence here. And so he has to, so, so mediation. What do, what do you think of when you think of a priest? I know what I think of. I think of pomp and just kind of austerity, aloofness, superiority. I just think different. They dress differently. They talk differently. They act differently. They're just, they're just different. They're other. They're, they're greater. That's kind of the image I get in my mind. But if you were Jewish and you were living in the first century, the most significant person in your life would be the priest, the high priest. You probably probably would have never seen him in person, you'd never gotten his autograph, never had your picture painted with him or whatever they did. You would have probably never sat through a service that he led and conducted, heard him speak a word. But in terms of your relationship to God as a human being, he was without question the most important person in your life. And so there's this Old Testament background that's behind what he's saying here and really behind this whole letter of, of, of Hebrews. And so from a, from a biblical perspective, it's clear that believers need a priest. Need a priest. They, where does this concept come from? It's not just because, well, the Jews had priests in, the Old, in Judaism and the Old Testament, so I guess we need uh, some version of that today. That's not it. This goes all the way back to Job, before the law was ever given to Israel. This is the earliest biblical record we have, the the book of Job. And Job's agonizing over this this idea that he really wants to go and make his case before God. But he knows that even if he goes and makes his case, he he can't, at the end of the day, he's not God, and God is holy, and he's a sinner, and he can't do this. So what does Job say? In Job 9.33, Job says this, If only there was a mediator, or some translations say an umpire. If only there was a mediator who could stand between God and me and put his hands on both of us and bring us together. That's why we need a priest. And that, that's, that's what a priest does. He, in a sense, mediates between God the judge and man the sinner. And the priest ultimately represents both parties equally and stands between and mediates this relationship. And here's Jesus who is, who is God and He reaches out and He puts His hand on God and He's man and He reaches out and puts Himself on man and He, and he brings us together. He mediates this relationship. He, he mediates between God the judge and man the sinner on our behalf. 
And we need a mediator to go between us and God because God is, is holy and He's perfect and He's just and we are sinners. An illustration of this, you, you look at Moses and, and Israel and their, their connection. And so the, the children of Israel, they thought, well, you know what? Once the Lord shows up at Sinai, this is going to be amazing. It's going to be, this is going to be great. We're actually going to see Yahweh face to face. And, and, and maybe we get to shake his hand, maybe we get his autograph, and, and this is just going to be great. And so they show up in Exodus 19 and 20. And they're getting ready for the Lord to make his appearance, like, like they're getting ready for a celebrity to show up. And they're seeing how close they can get, and they can't touch the mountain, but they're going to get, they want front row seats. They're clamoring to see who can get the, the front seats. And then all of a sudden, God shows up. And nobody wants front row seats anymore. They don't want second row. They don't want 10th row. They don't want 30th row. They want to get as far away as they can get. And so they end up saying to Moses, you know what? <laughs> it was nice that we got to see this. This was quite impressive and remarkable. We're not going to forget this for the rest of our lives. But here's what we want you to know. From now on, when God wants to talk to us, Rather than speaking to us directly, would you please find out what he wants to say and and you communicate that to us? And when we want to say something to God, we'll write it out and give it to you and you can take it to God. In fact, while we're at it, let's just kind of rearrange the whole neighborhood here and we're not really comfortable being this close to the Lord. This This was their response. And, and and they knew they, they knew they needed a mediator. They knew that they needed a priest to stand between them, someone who would who would ha- have a connection to God and connection to them. But they couldn't do it for themselves. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says. This is all in the background. And we need a priest to, who will represent us to God. You see this in Hebrews five verse one. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And so again, in Hebrews 2.17, Jesus was made like us in every respect that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to mediate this relationship with God, to put his hand on God, to put his hand on us, and to bring us together. But he's not just any kind of high priest. He, he, he's not austere and cold and aloof and distant and, and, and stoic. No, he's a merciful and faithful high priest. He is heart, his, he is full of tender compassion. We, everything we see of Jesus in the gospel shows this. And he's faithful, he's dependable, he's trustworthy, reliable. He, the, the work God gave him to do, he accomplished. We saw this in John 17, what is the high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 4, Jesus prays to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is our high priest. He's merciful. He's faithful. When we say he's faithful, we're saying, it's not just saying he has excellent job performance. He really, he, his, evaluation, his annual evaluation, he did really good. That's not it. He's merciful. He's faithful. He's trustworthy to you. This makes all the difference in the world, brothers and sisters, for we who are in Christ. I know. If, if you're here, and you're, you're, your last breath may be near, and, and that's true for all of us, but maybe some realize, and I, we're praying for our brother Frank. I know his mom is walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and they are with her, and, and her time is coming. And I, 
but the encouragement of words like this is if you're in Christ, the, 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 you, you will never be lost. You have a merciful and faithful high priest. And he, is, he, is, he, will, he, will, he will not... He will not cease mediating that relationship. If you walked into here today with a load of guilt and shame because of something you did, something you've said, something you've thought, and you just think that it's, how can God love me? How can God, how can I still be a Christian? Listen, you don't mediate your own relationship with God. You're not your own priest. You can't. But you have one who is merciful and faithful to do what you couldn't do on your own. And, and, and it's not based upon your righteousness. It's on the basis of the righteousness of our priest, which is perfect. So this, this has all kinds of relevance to us. And he, and he says he's merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God or in the service of God. Just In other words, everything that's necessary for you to know God, to love God, to worship God, to obey God, Jesus has provided. That's, he's, he's the answer to everything in terms of how we relate to God. All right. Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And then here's the end. Here's the rescue. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's our third word. Propitiation. Propitiation. We needed incarnation. Jesus, or identification. Jesus had to be made like us so that there could be mediation. We might have a merciful and faithful high priest in order that there might be Rescue, propitiation. Now, that's not a word we hear in everyday normal conversation. I don't think over at your workplace around the water cooler, that one just kind of comes out when people are talking about sports or weather or celebrity gossip or something. That's not a word that comes up. And it may be a new word, brand new word for some of you here today. And some of your Bibles, if if you're here in Hebrews 2 and you're using a different uh, version, different translation, English translation, you might have a different word there, atonement or uh, sacrifice, or some translations even use reconciliation. So, but but propitiation, it's a a good word, and and we'll unpack that in the time we have remaining here. First question, what does it mean? That's always a good thing to understand. Start with definitions. Here's a simple definition. Propitiation is an offering that turns away the wrath of God directed against sin. It's an offering that turns away the wrath of God directed against sin. And so God provided in Christ, is what Hebrews is telling us, the offering, the atoning sacrifice that satisfies or that removes divine wrath. So that's that's what it means. And we'll open that up more as we ask these other questions. Second where does it come from? And, and what I mean when I say that is, what's the background behind this idea? And we've touched on this a little bit as we've talked about priesthood, but we need to say more. The, the Hebrew word uh, for propitiation that's behind propitiation is kafar. It just means atonement. That's how it's generally translated. You heard of Yom Kippur. That's, that, that Kippur is uh, a version of that kafar. It's a day of atonement. And, and so kafar, the atonement, means to cover or obviously to atone for. And so just we see this in Leviticus 4. Leviticus 4, the sinner brings his sacrifice to the priest. The priest offers the sacrifice to the Lord by slaying it and putting it on the altar. And when it happens, he makes atonement. He makes covering for sin. 
That's what it's doing. And because of that covering for sin, that sin is forgiven. And that's the idea behind this. So, so behind this idea of atonement is, is the anger of God over sin. God didn't prescribe this simply to be a religious ritual. You know, what can you guys do when you get together at the temple? I know, let's offer sacrifices. That would be something to kind of kill the time. And, and, you know, some people sing and some people, you know, preach. But you guys offer sacrifices. No, it wasn't just a filler. It was, there was purpose in it. And so atonement and sacrifice, it presupposes God's anger over sin. An illustration of this, this is a passage that, uh, in the context of which Eric will be on December 31st. He's preaching New Year's Eve. Um, and, and this is a golden calf episode. That you have the, this residue of idolatry in God's people that they've, they've picked up and they just can't seem to let go. And, and, they, and they, so they have this golden calf and they even call the calf Yahweh. It's just crazy. And, and, but Aaron, and, in, and I love Aaron. He has one of the best excuses of all times. And Moses asked, you know, what happened? Where did this calf come from? And Aaron's answer is basically, well, everybody brought their gold jewelry, jewelry and we threw it into the fire and out jumped this calf. And, but you see the Lord's response in Exodus 32, 9 and 10. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. So you see this connection between Israel's sin and and idolatry and God's anger. He's provoked by their sin. The Lord says, leave me alone. Let my anger burn to full boil. Then let me wipe them out and... Verse 30, then the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned against, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make what? Atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can make covering for your sin. So atonement, it it presupposes that God is justly angry over sin and therefore sin must be covered. It must be atoned for if God is to forgive sin. He can't just say, ah, forget about it. No, something must be done. It must be atoned for. One other little bit of Old Testament background. It's the priests who were the ones who offered the atoning sacrifice. And we've talked about that Jesus is our high priest. If you were an ancient Israelite, you couldn't, as I said, make atonement for yourself. You needed the priest to be that mediator between you and God. So you have on the, on the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus 16, we see the, this explained. and You had these two goats that were brought to the high priest, and he would, he would kill the first goat as a sin offering. And that was the, this was the one day every year that the high priest could actually enter into the Holy of Holies. And he would go into the Holy of Holies, where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it contained the Ten Commandments. And, on the, and the cover of that was known as the Mercy Seat, which is tr- translated in the New Testament, Propitiation. And so on the Day of Atonement, the priest came realizing that God's holy law that was, that was represented by the Ten Commandments there, it had been transgressed. His people had violated His law. Therefore, He was provoked to anger because of their transgression. So atonement was made and blood was spilt and the blood of that goat was sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the, the sins of, the, of, of broken law were covered by that. 
And then there was a second goat, and the high priest would, would, would lay his hand on the head of that, that second goat, and, and then he, he would confess the sins of the people, and then he would lead that goat outside of the city and release it out into the wilderness. And it, was, it, was, it symbolized the fact that the sins of the people had been carried away because of that atonement that had been done, because the blood had been sprinkled in, on the mercy seat, the, the propitiation that was made through the blood of the first goat. So it's all, it's all in the background of Hebrews 2.17. Jesus Christ, our high priest, came into this world to make propitiation for our sins. So the purpose of the incarnation was that the Son might become a priest. And the purpose of the Son becoming a priest is that He might make propitiation for our sins. Third question, why do we need it? And we've answered this in, in a roundabout way, but Jesus came to make propitiation The text says, for the sins of the people. Sin and wrath were not just an issue for ancient Israel. This is the whole world's problem. And and one of the things that we see is as we understand what propitiation is and and, and the, and the, 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 the background behind it, one of the things we see, it helps us to see that all our sin is Godward. It's all directed at God. We tend to we tend to think of sin horizontally, how our sin affects others. And, and it does affect others, but that's kind of, we kind of cap it off there. Or we think of our sin internally. You know, I'm just, I'm just really struggling right now. And, and we think about how it affects me. And, and because I, I'm just disappointed in myself, that's the biggest problem with sin. No, our sin is against God. That's the, all sin is Godward. It's sin that, that provokes the anger, justice, and wrath of God. And if that's true, then our sin is against Him. This is what David in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And we say, what are you talking about, David? You and you only, you, wait a second, you seduced Bathsheba. You sinned against her. You, you murdered Uriah. You sinned against him. You, you, you compelled these soldiers to, to be part of your wicked plot and they died in it and you sinned against them and, 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 and you sinned against the nation and you sinned against your friends and you sinned against yourself, if you want to say that. Yet, we, all these horizontal aspects of David's sin and yet he boils it all, he says, when you boil it all down, God, all my sin is against you. It's you and you only that I've sinned against. Done what is evil in your sight. Our sin is always against the Lord. Our sin is always in the sight of God. Our sin is always an affront to His holiness. Our sin is always a transgression of His law. Our sin is always a violation of His righteousness. Just to illustrate, just, I, had, I thought of this, that I already had this illustration, and I'm driving down Corinth Road this morning, and I passed the sheriff's deputy, and uh, it scared me a little bit. I thought, this is not the day. When, but just imagine getting pulled over for speeding on court. This almost wasn't hypothetical to me this morning. You're going 50 and 35 out here. And the officer says to you as you get pulled over, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to give you a citation. You will, you will need to appear in court. You're going to have to pay a fine. Why? Why would he say it? Because you've broken a law, a traffic law. And he tears off the little triplicate papers. I haven't had a speed ticket in quite a while. <sighs> Please. Uh, that almost changed. Um, but I don't know if they text it to you or how they get you. The, the, maybe it's not triplicate anymore, but that's how it used to be. 
But, but when he does that, the, the Fayette County Sheriff's Deputy or Clayton County Sheriff, depending on which part of Corinth Road you're on, he doesn't say, you know, you really offended me by going 50 miles per hour. When I saw you going that fast, my heart just broke. <laughs> when, I, when I got out of my car and grabbed my ticket book and, and, and I was thinking, you violated everything that I am as a sheriff's deputy and as a human being. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. No cop would ever say that or think that. Why? Because a speeding ticket is not personal. It, 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 the law is, in a sense, this abstract entity. He's just, he's just uh, observing it. But not so with sin. Not so with God. Every sin is personal with God. You cheat on your final exam or your research paper. God takes that personally. You cheat on your taxes. God takes that personally. You cheat on your spouse. God takes that personally. You store up anger, bitterness, unforgiveness towards another brother or sister in Christ. God takes that personally. You lust after a woman. God takes that personally. You gossip about a sister in Christ. God takes that personally. Why? Because all sin is against God. It's a violation of everything He is as a righteous God. So therefore our sin provokes God's anger. It incites His, his wrath. It's, it's personal. Now, when we talk about God's wrath for our sin, don't think like... Uh, a uh, toddler's temper tantrum, and they just melt down. They don't get what they want. And, 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 and No, God doesn't fly off the handle when he, things don't go his way. That's not it. His, his wrath flows from his holy character. His, it's always pure. It's always steady. John Stott says of God's wrath, the wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and all of its manifestations. And, but that's, that's, why we need, that's why we need the rescue. That's why we need propitiation. Is because of our sin, God's wrath, that steady, unrelenting antagonism of God against all of our evil, it remains on us. Now, who has provided it? That's the next question. Who has provided it? Yes, all of our sin is personal. It's all Godward. It's all, it's all personal. It's all against God and it cites His wrath. But you know what else? Propitiation is also personal. God doesn't, God doesn't just deal with us generically. He deals with us personally and in a loving, gracious way. Jesus came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He didn't just came to make, come to make propitiation for sin in general. He, didn't, he came to make propitiation for the sins of people, for you and me, people with real names and real faces and real people and real lives, real sheep who are, whose names are really written on His heart and graven in His hands. This is what He's done. And, and God Himself is the one who provides the propitiation because of His love and grace. So the, the wrathful God against our sin is also the loving God who provides the rescue. Propitiation is not, it's not the loving Son winning over the tyrannical, angry Father. That's not the picture. That's not, wow, Dad, you're really mad at them because of their sin. And... and you know, what, what, can I, what can I do? I know I can sacrifice myself to appease your wrath. That's not it at all. No, Romans 3.25, God Himself is the one who put forth Jesus to make propitiation in His blood through faith. He 
It's because of his amazing, overflowing love and grace towards us that he sent Christ to make this atoning sacrifice. 1 John 4, 10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. John Stott again, he says of this, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiation, propitiating. And God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self and his son, in his own son when he took his place and died for us. That's powerful. It's good. Another thing about God's provision of this propitiation, as our, high, as our high priest, think about this, Jesus Christ is himself both offerer and offering. He's priest and he sacrificed. When he went to the cross, he, he wasn't dragging a goat along or leading a bull with a rope or you know slung a lamb over his shoulders, taking it up there to be the sacrifice. So he's the priest and he's going to offer this animal for the sacrifice of sin. No, he's going to offer up himself. The priest is offering himself as the spotless lamb of God in our place. He himself is going to make propitiation for our sins. He's going to be our covering. He's going to offer himself as the object of the fierce wrath of God in our place. When you understand that, it begins to some of those events of the passion of Jesus Christ begin to make much more sense. This is what's behind Gethsemane. This is what's behind Jesus as he, as he feels the weight of what he's about to do and he prays to the Father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. So three times he prays that. and we, He's not shrinking from the physical pain of crucifixion. And the agony that he's about to endure. It's a, as horrific and as painful a death as crucifixion was. It's not the spears and the, and the thorns and the nails and the mocking and the death by asphyxiation, asphyxiation that he's, he's, so, he's shrinking from. And what he's shrinking from is the thought of absorbing into his own whole, holy, pure, undefiled self the white hot wrath of God. And as he contemplates that, what, what it would mean to experience God's undiluted anger as a sinner substitute, his own holy soul recoils and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. So it's behind that. It's behind his cry on the cross of abandonment. He, he withstood the pain, but then something happened. And at noon, darkness fell on the face of the earth. And at noon, right in the middle of the day, and in darkness, this is a deep darkness that could no doubt be felt. We've experienced that kind of darkness. And, and, and darkness means judgment. That's throughout Scripture. And so the climax of judgment has come. Our Lord, who had known nothing but pure, unbroken fellowship with His Father from all eternity, He absorbs the fierce wrath of God for us in our place, and He became the curse. And so for those three hours as darkness covered the earth, He absorbed that into His body. And then he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was making propitiation for our sins. Covering, toning sacrifice. Experiencing in concentrated form 
the eternal hell that we deserve. Last question. What difference does it make? Why spend so much time talking about a word we hardly ever use or hear? Well, if you've trusted in Christ for salvation, you can, what this means is you can be absolutely, absolutely confident and assured that every single one of your God-belittling, glory-desecrating sins has been atoned for and wiped away forever. <laughs> Amen. Because of the propitiation Jesus made for your sins, you can, you can be confident that He has for you nothing but, but unhindered love, grace, mercy, affection for you. He doesn't, He's not still a little bit ticked. No, He has nothing but love in His heart for you today, no matter what you've done. Because of Christ. I've quoted this other, time, other, other times, but let's listen to this. Absolutely 100%. Not 99.99999%. of the wrath I deserve for my sins was truly spent on Jesus. And there is none of God's anger left over me, over for me to bear, even when I fail God as a Christian. Hence God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always seeking to work all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. All of these realities hold true even when I sin. Being justified in Christ doesn't mean that God no longer sees or cares about my sin. He does see and He's grieved by my sin. But His gracious favor upon me remains utterly unchanged by my sin and no wrath is awakened in Him against me. Because Christ already bore it all. In fact, God favors me so much when I sin that He sends chastisement into my life. He does so because of His love for me and, me, and He loves me and His discipline and He disciplines me for my ultimate good. So that's totally that's a total paradigm shift for many of us. Is that how you is that how you view the Lord and His mercy today? Or do you, are you still trying to be that priest mediating your relationship with God by keeping this, this spreadsheet of good versus bad? And if you can keep, the, keep it out of the red, keep it in the black, then you're pretty sure God's on your side and He loves you and He's for you. But if you get into that red, you just, you just see the scowl on the face of God. And He's a little bit ticked and He's, he's, he's holding on to some wrath against you. That's a... That's an unbiblical uh, view of the Lord and His mercy. So brothers and sisters, let this, this truth be of wonderful comfort to you and help to you as a believer. The other side, if you've not yet believed in Christ, look to Him today as your merciful and faithful high priest. He can put His hand upon God and, and you and, 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 and bring you together with God. The one, the one who stood between you and your sin and God and His holiness and bore God's wrath in your place. So I say, quit trying to be good enough to earn God's favor. You can't. Own up to your sin. Confess it to God. Understand that you are the one who belonged on that cross, not Jesus, but He died in your place. And then believe that He has taken your place. 
that he died for you, that he rose again. Call him Savior today. Trust in him as a sacrifice for your sins. If you've not trusted in Jesus, realize that you are on a sunken submarine. There's no way that you're going to be able to save yourself from that depth. Help must come from the outside. But help has been provided. So one of these days, whether it's today or whether it's 50 years from now, we don't know. The oxygen's going to run out. And it will be too late. And if you've not trusted in Christ, the wrath of the loving God who wants to rescue you, it still abides on you today. But today, you can look to Christ alone who paid for your sins and you can be rescued. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, there's the story that Jesus tells about two men praying in the temple. One of them's a very religious man, a Pharisee, is like the epitome of religiosity in that day. And the other was a tax collector, which is on the other end of the scale, just a hated man, a traitor in that, in that era, and just seen as a scum of the earth. And so this religious leader stands up in the temple, and he's boasting about how he's not as bad as all of these other people in the world and boasting of his morality And then the despised tax collector stands up and he beats his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That word merciful is the same word that's translated in Hebrews 2.17, propitiation. He's saying, God, be propitious to me. Make covering for me. Make atonement for me, a sinner. You can, and, and what does that Jesus say about that man? That man, that man went home justified that day. You may have entered this room in great danger this morning, but you can leave having been rescued, justified. And I pray that you will. There's a lot of stuff to get excited about this time of year, Christmas. Um, I know for, we've, the small group that meets in our home made up predominantly of college students. There's excitement over finishing final exams and research projects. Uh, some of you are excited about having a break from work and school and excited about Christmas gifts and excited about some college football playoffs I hear that are happening and and um, excited about a new Star Wars movie and on and on. Lots of things to be excited about. A start of a new year, a fresh start and what that potential brings and Excited to see family members, friends that you haven't seen in a long time, perhaps. But that's all good, and I'd want you to so enjoy those things and find great joy. We're, in the next hour, we're going to be talking about that. That we uh, God has given us everything to richly enjoy, and we ought to find great delight in those things. But all of those matters and reasons for joy they they just they 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 fade into insignificance compared to this great truth that we're looking at today. And I want this to sustain your heart. Um, Therefore, he had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of, of the people. That's the best news you will hear all day. That's the best thing you'll hear all Christmas. That's the best thing you'll hear your whole life. And so, brothers, let's revel in 
this grace that is ours through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that our hearts would be um, warmed by uh, the fires of um, this truth of, of what you've done in providing Jesus Christ as our atoning sacrifice. And that it would overflow as we uh, both tell you and in, in respond in praise and singing and thanksgiving and praying to you in gratitude. And it, it would overflow in us proclaiming uh, this good news of a rescue to those who remain in danger. And so help us to speak out to you in praise, speak out to others in proclamation of this gospel of Jesus Christ over the next couple of weeks. May, may these wonderful truths, I, I know this is a conflicted time for many and there are griefs and there are sorrows that they carry into this time of year. There are, there are regrets and, and there's guilt and there's shame and I pray that, that you, would, you would bring by your spirit these wonderful truths to remembrance and to mind as, and, and whatever we need in the coming days so that this can be a time of celebration and joy even in the midst of difficult things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.